Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, listeners of the Mad Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Cogswell, here with my co-host, Marie Mayhew. Marie. What's up? We're still not dead. We're still, we're still alive for I can't this moment. It. Yeah, it's so exciting. Yeah, we joke. We're all ha 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 ha. Look at us, still surviving. I know. Still, still playing with fire. <laughs> it's just a matter of time. Let's the fire just is only do gonna, it again. The fire is only going to get hotter this episode. <sighs> Idiots. <laughs> Idiots, <laughs> listeners. Man. Idiots. This <sighs> episode. This episode, we are going to talk about. So last, okay. Last episode, we started off by talking about uh, Robert Bigelow's early history. And we got mm-hmm. from essentially him as a kid, his grandparents had this UFO experience. It affected him greatly. He then gets up allegedly. to allegedly, allegedly had this UFO experience. He or then gets, maybe he just fell in love with atomic blast. Or maybe he just loves space in general. <laughs> right. Any of these options, right? Uh, up, to, up to the tragic death of his son, Rod. Mm-hmm. This episode we're tracking from essentially essentially the from that point in 92 up to about 96 with the founding of what's called NIDS, the National Institute of Discovery Science, which famously uh, worked on the Skinwalker Ranch after Bigelow purchased the property in 95. And so the way that we're going to do this episode, it's a little challenging because there are so many moving parts to this. There's like 10 different researchers and NIDs, all of whom could have an episode done on them individually, really. But we're going to focus on a couple of them. So the way we're going to do this is we're going to first talk about Bigelow and his kind of doings up to the founding of NIDs. Then we're going to break down two of the biggest players in NIDs for you. Um, Harold Pudoff or Hal Pudoff and John Alexander, Colonel John Alexander. We're going to focus Colonel. on those. We're going to focus on those two because they tend to be, I would argue they are the most important of the NIDS members besides maybe John Schusler, who will also cover, but essentially uh, is a, he's a founding member of MUFON. He's very involved in the UFO field. Um, and that's how he kind of comes on board with NIDS is his involvement in UFOs. The other two, however, come on board, not because of their involvement in UFOs, but because of their involvement in the world of parapsychology, which is an interesting part of this whole story. Mm-mm-mm. Now, we don't know exactly how Bigelow meets these people, but we have pretty good suppositions as to how they're connected and some good anecdotal evidence to point the point the way there. But again, we can't like point to a specific event that says, ah, this is when Robert Bigelow met Hal Pudoff and they decided they were going to look for aliens together. We don't yeah, have th- anything like that. It was in the library with a candlestick. Yeah, like, so, right? yeah, so, no. so this is essentially going to be almost like our version of the Justice League of uh, kooks, <laughs> but we're going to hopefully do it a little bit better than they did the Justice League movie. Anyways. God, I hope so. I wish we had half their budget. <laughs> I'm telling you, seriously, right? It'd be so good if we had half their budget. A tenth of their budget would be awesome. Who would be Aquaman? Ooh. Just throwing it out there. Aquaman, I think, 
Aquaman, I think, has got to be... No, I don't think Alexander. Alexander is, like, the one that secretly does have a lot of power, but, like, you know, Alexander is, like, Martian Manhunter. Or maybe The Flash. He doesn't get a lot of love, but he's kind of fun in interviews. He's still credible. And he's oh, really yeah. powerful. He's sort of yeah. quirky, yeah. Yeah, Bigelow is definitely okay. Superman. He's kind of overwrought in, in specialty and everything else. I would almost argue... I would almost argue, argue Pudoff is Aquaman because people are trying to make him happen right now, but it's just not going to happen. You know, it's just not, it's just not that cool. And there's not a lot there to make Aquaman. happen. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't know though. I don't know. And then I guess that would make us, um, I don't know the Mm. Legion of doom. Mm. Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. This is awesome. Far too much credit, but okay. All right. Let's, uh, let's, let's roll the tape. Jake. Jake be in Legion of Doom? Um, ooh. I feel like didn't Morrison write Legion of Doom? Yeah, no, Doom so. Patrol. Yeah, Doom, yeah, Doom Patrol. Patrol. That's different. Yeah, no, I think yeah. honestly, Legion of Doom. I would argue. Uh, I don't know. Maybe Jake is Brainiac because he's kind of the ooh. brains behind the the technical stuff and everything else. I would I argue like I'm it. Gorilla Grood because I'm very hairy and I walk. <laughs> so according to Katie, I walk like a gorilla at nighttime to the bathroom. <laughs> like in those in those in those Katie's YouTube like, videos of gorillas walking. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for disclosing that for the then, American public. And then Maria, I guess that makes you Lex Luthor. I I'm bold. I'm not gonna lie to you. I'm bold. <laughs> I'm bold and evil. Why not? <laughs> and the other thing is I am so much more Marvel than I am DC. Even yeah. before even before even before Marvel was a thing. I liked it before it was a thing. You know, so did so did I. But then I go back and I read the the comics that I go back and read now that still are good mm-hmm. are the DC ones, like the old Batman's and stuff. And if I if I read old Marvel, I'm almost embarrassed by how corny they are. <laughs> like reading reading um, uh, the Dark Phoenix saga again, I was like, oh my uh, god, I can't believe I thought this oh, was so oh, dark yeah. and gritty and cool. X Men is sort of a different like. That's even sort of a little bit more standalone. Like Very, I don't know. I, when yeah. I was when I was younger, I did love Spider Man. I loved oh, Spider Man's the best series, right? Because I just thought that that was awesome. All right, Bigelow. <laughs> so, so the effect of his the the effect of the death of his son is undoubtedly significant, and it's definitely a part of what drives him. It seems. However, we showed in the previous episode that he was already doing this kind of research. He was already starting to fund researching the UFOs by like the mid. Uh, 1980s mm-hmm. so it's so this pre- there is a prevailing rumor out there in the UFO community that he starts getting involved because of the death of his son but there's just there's just no way that's true we have documentation that he was already involved before that um, you know maybe it's because of his son's interest that he becomes extremely involved in things however and, and he thinks about you know maybe making a name for himself to leave like a legacy or something but it it's very, very, I think, um, I, I think it's very inaccurate to say that he becomes interested in this because of the death of his son. I, I don't think that's true. So, yeah. Well, I would say I think it's hard to it's hard to pinpoint any one thing. I think that that could be a propellant in this true. type of, you know, of wanting to know something or trying to understand something better. Um, it definitely he definitely became more visible during that time spending money 
to yes. accelerate things. So I think that there, I think there is something to it. I don't know if it's the thing we think it is. No, you know, I, I think I, yeah, I think that's the problem. Is it's like we don't know what that looks like, but it could be something that is, that is just you know, again, like this more. I don't want to say public show, but this more of a outpouring of trying to understand things and trying to fund things that we're going to be getting into. Absolutely, yeah. So, so we know we know that in the in 1990 he was doing research with uh, Mufon already, and especially you know essentially the higher ups in Mufon too, like not not mid level people. He wasn't like going to a local meeting. He was working with the heads of Mufon, so that's probably where he met John Schusler. Um, and he ends up actually helping to fund in 92 a really significant uh, abduction research conference at MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. So um, it's famously one of, I think, the most significant kind of scientific, um, I don't know, studies of the event. And it kind of focuses on a couple of different things that Bigelow actually helped to fund, um, including an abductee uh, kind of research survey. Um, and then later on with Alexander, a research survey of um, religious figures in the United States. But so Bigelow helps to fund and attends this conference at MIT. There he certainly would have at least met with um, John Alexander, although it's said in, in some places that Alexander actually helped start that conference as well. So maybe they were already working together there. Um, however, this is where, at least by 92, he would have already have met and known Jacques Vallée, John Alexander, uh, John Schusler, so a couple of the big names in NIDS. Hmm. He's also, though, simultaneously funding other societies. So he starts funding the Rhine Research Center for Consciousness Studies, um, the Society for Scientific Exploration, which is a foundation actually started by Hal Pudoff. So that's likely how he met him through this, again, kind of analysis and stuff. Um, he becomes involved with the Mars Society, um, which the Mars Society and actually also with the Space Transportation Association, um, both specifically in the space tourism divisions. So he's, he's interested in making space hotels, right? The thing that he's always said he Early wanted to on. do. Yeah. Early on. Um, and so the Mars Society is actually a, a group of people who get together to say that we should be traveling to Mars, right? We should be colonizing Mars for human habitation and study and everything else. Yeah. And then also he, becomes, also he becomes involved with the Nevada, or the Nevada Test Site Association. So this is also where likely he would have met some of the other big names in NIDS, um, you know, Edgar Mitchell, like actual scientists and, and ast astronauts. So... Um, it's, it's Actual this is, scientists. Why are you air quoting the other ones? I'm not going to say anything yet, Marie. <laughs> this is but, where he met real scientists. <laughs> but so this is, this is probably where he would have met people like Jim uh, Winery, um, who uh, you know, becomes part of NIDS, of course, um, where he would have met people like, uh, again, John Alexander, um, which, or not John Alexander, sorry. I mean, yeah, of course, John Alexander as well. But also some other folks, right? So Martin Pilch may be there. Um, he might have met uh, some others. So, anyways. He then, uh, at the same time, supposedly, Bigelow is funding a very interesting little group on a radio show called Area 2000. This funding starts in 1993. Hmm. This group would become really important to the Bigelow legacy and story 
It's a radio show with George Knapp, Linda Moulton Howe, and Art Bell. It's essentially the beginnings of uh, Coast to Coast AM. So Bigelow helps fund them for this radio show, supposedly, um, in 1993. He stops funding them a year later because he just – he. funnily enough, the, I think the quote that I found was that he didn't think that they would have enough good uh, people to interview anymore after the first year. <laughs> and then Coast to Coast AM continued for 20 years and is still going on. So it's an interesting part of the story here. I just um, love that original name. It's so perfectly, you know, of the time. Really, right? Like, like Area 2000. Sure. Hilarious. 2000. Um, the show would later morph into Dreamland, which would then become Coast to Coast AM. But this is where he continues his work with George Knapp and Linda Moulton Howe, especially, um, who are going to become important parts of the story. He also, though, is dabbling in normal philanthropy. Like, he's starting to give money to actual other societies. He's not just funding UFO stuff. So right. he's uh, he actually donates two buildings to the University of Nevada at Las Vegas, um, the Bigelow Physics Building and the Rod Lee Bigelow Health Sciences Building, both of which still bear those names. Yep. So he's also giving money, and he is giving money to politicians and things, and, you know, primarily Republicans, but Harry Reid, of course, he's giving money to. Um, he's just kind of building up his... What did we say last time, right? He's good at grease and palms. He's good at the political stuff. Yep. He's just yep. building up that base of people for... He's a collector. He is. Right? That's he's actually collecting. Very, yeah, a he's fascinating people. way of thinking about it. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's collecting everything. Like, that's how... If you look at sort of how he acquired buildings and how he acquired, uh, you know, again, just anything that he did, how he met people or stuff we get into later, he, it's not so much like a hoarder. <laughs> Cause like you said, if, if it's not working, he's like, he, he dumps it. But I think it's interesting cause he definitely has this sort of collector and connoisseur of figuring out, figuring out people's usefulness and taking note of it and then coming back to it later. Yeah. He, that's absolutely true. And Interestingly enough, actually, so from this point on, things are going to get a little bit dicey to pull apart truth from fric fr truth, truth from friction. Truth, <laughs> Jake, Jake, cut it out. It's going to. Oh, that's the best. How do you separate the truth from friction? Jake, leave it True. in. This this part in the story is where things start to get really hard to pick apart the truth from the fiction. And the reason for that is because of a, dare I say it, pencil-headed nerd named Richard Doty. Nerds. Doty is famously involved in the, the Paul Benowitz affair, which Rob alluded to in our first episode. And we frankly just don't have the time to go over it as part of this series. However... We're going to create it as a bonus episode, the whole Richard Doty thing. Um, that's going to go out to the Patreon first, and then a month later we'll go out to uh, full listeners of the show. So um, get ready for that in your feeds. However, a lot of what Bigelow funds and a lot of the people Bigelow is working with, George Knapp, Linda Moulton Howe, Hal Pudoff, John Alexander, all these people, 
appear to have gotten involved with a individual named Rick Doty, who would, in the year 2000, and with Bill Moore, a, a, a ufologist mm-hmm. with MUFON, who around the year, like, 1989, 1990, 2000, will come out and say, in that period, will come out and say that he has been paid by the United States Air Force. He worked for the Air Force Office of Special Investigations. He will come out and say that he has been feeding disinformation to these people in the UFO field for years. The point of which is to hide actual government programs that are ongoing. So, Hmm? it is nearly impossible to tell if any of the stuff that these people find or work on is true or valuable or anything. It's it's just it's just impossible at this point. So crazy. It's fascinating because it's like a conspiracy theory right there, right? Yeah, and anytime you disprove it, you prove it stronger. Or trying to prove it, you're you're a shill. Yes, and part of the problem becomes that. Individuals like, say, Hal Pudoff and John Alexander and and Bigelow to a lesser extent, but mostly these other two, become part of that mythology in that Bill Moore will claim that they are also disinformation agents um, purposely put into the UFO community to spread lies. Now, we don't know if that's true. We have no way of knowing either way. Richard, you know, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work, you know, and it seems like. If they th- if that was really the case, then it's a lot of work. It seems like if that was really the case, these people would not be so committed to the field as they are still. So I'm edging on the side that that's probably not true, but we're going to cover it in a bonus episode. But anyways, just keep that in the back of your mind for all of this Bigelow stuff from this point forward, essentially, that all of the stuff he has been funding up to this point. Some guys come out and been like, haha, I've been tricking you to hide drone technology in the desert. <laughs> So keep that in mind. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. In the year 1992, Bigelow will begin what is called the Bigelow Foundation, which is impossible to find any good information on because there are two way bigger and more successful foundations called the Bigelow Foundation out there, one of which is run by the Bigelow Tea Company and one of which is run (laughs) by the F.R. Bigelow family here in St. Paul, Minnesota. It's that's well, it. And I think he also put a lot of other work entities under the Bigelow Foundation. He, he sure had, he did. Had a few, he had the Bigelow Trust. He had like, he had sort of, again, he was pretty good at, um, at masking what he was doing with shell companies. I well, think yeah. in some ways. And again, allegedly pure, pure speculation on my part, but you have someone with so much, uh, so much wealth and they're very nimble and he runs sort of this very small organization that's not publicly held. So it seems like if you start to kind of follow his money a little bit and look into all of the places that he was, you know, looking at opening hotels, they're all under different names, but they all kind of roll up to a trust or a foundation or something like that. Yeah, he Which is fascinating. It's very interesting. So um, he also he also starts a lot of these companies with with ra- seemingly random people. Marie, have you confirmed that these people are real? Go lightly. Yeah, go lightly. I think he is. 
Okay, so I believe that he is. So I think we need to we need to do a little bit more of a deep dive on it. But anyone who he's putting on a trust or he's making the officer in a, uh, a shareholder or again they're putting he's putting him on the board mm-hmm. or he's making them a director. It's a real person. Well, so here's the thing though. I don't think it's actually the person that becomes on the board. It's the rich. It's the Ricky L. Golightly Foundation, right? So, Ricky L. Golightly is a is a corporation too. But he's but Ricky L. Golightly is also a person who sits okay. on his board of a lot of different uh, okay, okay. a lot of different things. So the reason we bring this up is that Bigelow, in using some pseudonyms and also shell companies and everything else. The, the telltale sign that this is a big low company is that Ricky L. Golightly is on the board. So he is on the board of uh, – he's, he's a secretary of Budget Suites of America. He's on the board of NIDS. Mm-hmm. He's on the, butter, the board for the Center for Space Sciences, uh, the Bigelow Foundation, the Bigelow Family Foundation, um, all, just all kinds of stuff that Bigelow is also involved in. So – you know, it's a good way of kind of honestly. It's more effective to search for Go Lightly in public records than it is to search for Bigelow when trying to find that stuff because he comes up everywhere. And I don't think it's a very common name. No, right? I mean, that's. I mean, again, like, but it's one of those things where it casts enough aspersion that you're like, is he real? Like, so this would be somebody that that Bigelow would have to be in communication with on a fairly frequent basis and would have to have a high amount of trust in to be doing all of this, right? Cause this, this person's not just some sort of a, again, just a, some sort of a patsy. Like this is clearly somebody who he trusts enough that he is, that he's giving some sort of, you know, again, some sort of, uh, you know, some sort of financial purview to. So it's, I have a feeling like it is, a real person, but then you're like, the dude's name is Golightly. Like how <laughs> then you're trying to find him and you're like, I can't even believe I'm looking for somebody named Golightly. This doesn't make you know, and you're like, no, it's not breakfast at Tiffany's. <laughs> Keep finding that. But I yeah. also think like this was happening he was using all of this before before internet search, right? Mm-hmm. Before that he knew I have a feeling, you know, the new whatever he's doing now or however he's sort of However, he's sort of uh, anonymizing his his money and how he places his money. He's probably using a lot simpler names than than Go Lightly. Yeah, probably a lot of acronyms. Anyways, mm-hmm. <laughs> anyways. So one of the interesting things, so the Bigelow Foundation becomes his method essentially of funding paranormal research. So. Uh, through the Bigelow Foundation, he hires uh, people to do research in like near-death experiences. He brings on people again to Bigelow Aerospace to give these kinds of talks and things. Um, but one of the most important things that the Bigelow Foundation will do is the creation of a a Department of Consciousness Studies, uh, specifically a Chair of Consciousness Studies. It's not really a department, but a program in Consciousness Studies at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And so it's through this that he will end up meeting a lot of the other NIDS players that appear on the outset to be, what's the word? They appear to be completely unaffiliated scientists with Robert Bigelow, which is what Mm -hmm. helps to give the group some credence. However, they become involved because Bigelow is giving them in their university just comical sums of money. Um, Yeah. 
So again, the lure of a rich guy with money. If you're a scientist, like we know this from Epstein, right? Mm-hmm. Even if the ideas are are just out of this world nuts, Epstein creating a clone army of himself because he thinks he's the perfect human specimen, right? With enough money, you can get even the best scientists of the day to come and listen to your crazy shit. So it's like it's not to me the inclusion of these people is not all that interesting, I guess. Because, of course, they'd be involved. This guy's going to give them a bunch of money to study stuff. You know, why not? Why not hear him out? Yeah, but I think that's true. But I also think that he's probably pretty discerning on who he would bring on board and give this money to. Oh, 100%. He's not. He is. We we know from Lazar that when he smells a fraud, he pulls money immediately. Right. So. But he's giving something to like he's giving millions and millions of dollars to something that is really just not any sort of proven anything. It's, it's, it's not even hypothetical. It's like a lot of it is, it doesn't, you know, human consciousness, the consciousness project. It's like, how do you even go about thinking that that's something that you could substantiate in some ways? Like what's the PowerPoint deck that you would give to Robert Bigelow for that? You'd be like, okay, so, you know, it's like, (laughs) that's insane that he would give that money and that he would validate. I I would take the money, of course, if I was on the scientist side, but it's, it's to me, it's just, I don't know. That's interesting. Well, and psychology is one of the few fields where these kinds of questions are taken, I think, a little bit more seriously just on the outset, because the idea of a, the idea of studying consciousness and extreme conscious experiences, that's not that out of the ordinary for the psychological fields. That's kind of a that's kind of a common that's kind of been a, a, a running theme, kind of a subcurrent in the psychological sciences for since uh, since Freud. You know, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I don't I don't think it's, that's that crazy to think that these people would be interested in this. But I do think, like you're saying, he is extremely discerning in who he gives the money to. Um, yes. So one of his first hires at the uh, at the Bigelow Foundation and actually one of the few people we know for sure or at least will come out and say that she worked there um, besides um, Colonel John Alexander's wife um, is Dr. Angela Smith. So she is a psychologist. um, who initially was working at the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Lab, or PEAR, as it was called. Um, that group studied parapsychology, again, kind of in the, in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, their main testing method involved the use of a random number generator um, to see if participants could affect the numbers that would be shot out. So imagine, Marie, like, so first off, like a random number generator that, that doesn't, really mean what people think it means in terms of like modern day where a computer is spitting out random things. A true random number generator works on like true randomness, like entropy. Right. And so it's essentially like a, you have a system where some physical, um, a, 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 a uncontrollable, um, physical system is operating that will then cause uh, a random signal to develop. Right. So, for instance, imagine like a imagine like a material that's irradiating its surroundings or shooting out electrons or something. Right. As it decays, those decay products will move about randomly because of, again, quantum mechanics and things. And so you can collect that signal and it will it can be transferred into or transformed into a random uh, number. Right. So, you know, a number between, say, one to ten that'll give random. It's not like it's not like picking a card. Is that what you're telling me? (coughs) 
No, it's not. It's not like picking a card at all. And actually, that is going to be one. Of, that is going to be one of the problems with the work that Hal Pudoff does. Is that his method is much closer to like picking out a card. So, um, he's not. Are you saying he's not quote unquote a real scientist? I'm not saying allegedly, Marie. Allegedly. Allegedly. So there's there's what there's what are known as true random number generators and then pseudo random number generators. Um, the true ones are again like a physical phenomena. So some other ones also are like atmospheric noise, thermal noise, um, cosmic radiation, like background radiation is another one that can be used for that. Um, but essentially, it's it's just you're you're essentially pulling out things that are affected by entropy, and so you're getting true randomness to be studied. And so what these studies would do is they would have people kind of sit in an area and try to predict or force the random number generator to give out a number of their choosing. Right. And so in that test, then you can actually measure and see, well, did the number four come out more often than any other number? And if that's if that is statistically significant, then that is a very compelling argument for. Uh, psychic powers. How did that work? It, it, what do you mean? How did it work? It didn't work. It didn't, <laughs> it didn't show anything, right? The, the lab oh. closed it. The lab closed in five years, Marie. It did not happen or not five years. This is a different one. Ooh. The one Bigelow founded closed in five years. Actually, they have one of my favorite Wikipedia entries ever, and I'm going to read it in its entirety really quickly. It's just a little paragraph. So quote, Pear's primary purpose was to engage in parapsychological ex- exercises on topics such as psychokinesis and remote viewing. The program had a strained relationship with Princeton and was considered an embarrassment to the university. And that has four citations. Pear's activities have been criticized for a lack of scientific rigor, poor methodology, and misuse of statistics. Three citations. And have been characterized as pseudoscience. The main uh, citation on the... Wikipedia article, oh end quote. God. Bam! Wikipedia dropping the damn mic, Marie. So it's not it's not great. This is not a this is not a, this is one of a number of these kind of programs that'll pop up that attempt to study these things with any kind of scientific scientific rigor. Um, and so and they they inevitably seem to fail. Some are still going and are actually quite interesting in my opinion. And we can do a whole episode on those kinds of societies and things. However. The random number generator stuff never really gets off the ground. Um, there's actually a famous case of it supposedly on the days before 9-11. All of the random number generators at these psychic places were outputting um, numbers at a higher st- statistical frequency than um, than they were previously or something crazy like that. No. Um, it's not true, right? It's just a meme story that floated around the internet before the attacks um, or after mm-hmm. the attacks, I should say. But – you know, whatever. So anyways, the chair of consciousness studies um, is, is actually in particular heralded by one of the deans of the University of Nebraska, of Nevada, um, Las Vegas, um, whose name is Warren Berggren, Ph.D., and he will become a part of NIDS. So he quotes – he is quoted here in a uh, University of uh, Nevada, Las Vegas kind of press release, quote, This area of study is really commanding a lot of interest and excitement – we're starting to see more interest in the scientific and philosophical sides of understanding human consciousness. Some very serious universities are engaged in the scientific study of consciousness, but not many. So the Bigelows have presented our students with a unique opportunity. It is definitely a prize for UNLV, end quote. 
Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> the first director of the program is Charles Tart, and then he leaves after a couple years, and it becomes chaired by Raymond Moody, both of whom are are basically, um, both of whom essentially are parapsychologists who are interested in the study of near death experiences and kind of consciousness, like remote viewing, all those kinds of things. So, really, his first um, big study or, or Bigelow's first really big funding is not in UFOs. I mean, he funds this, this other stuff and he starts funding Lazar and everything else. But mm-hmm. a, another big part of this story is the, is the consciousness is the psychology yep. and the parapsychology world that he's also very interested in. So the, uh, the fund will eventually close after five years. Um, it closes because no results come from the studies. Essentially um, nothing is publishable. Nothing is, you know, of scientific interest. Um, so it closes down and they turn it instead into a, um, a scholarship fund for students. So again, like Bigelow is doing, this is good. This is real philan- you know, philanthropy here. Um, you know, it just never, it doesn't paint out the way that he wants. <clears throat> so at the same time, it's a lot with, of money, it is yeah, a lot of money. Giving up a lot of money. Yeah. yeah. So the, another thing that the Bigelow foundation funds is what's known as the Bigelow foundation survey, also known as the Alexander UFO religious crisis survey which essentially becomes uh, – it's essentially meant to study how uh, – I think it's rabbis, Roman Catholic priests, and Protestant ministers believe UFO contact will affect their faithful. So will will this be a religious <laughs> issue for them? The study – actually, it's really interesting. The study itself never really gets analyzed. They just kind of collect the data, um, which happens a lot in UFO circles, frankly. It's easy to collect data. It's hard to analyze it in a rigorous way. So then what happens actually is that later on, Charles Tart, again, the head of the Bigelow Consciousness Studies or the chair of Consciousness Studies, um, the first first chair of that, um, he actually ends up writing a paper where he analyzes it and finds that, um, in fact, based on the survey results, religious leaders don't believe that there will be a negative effect of disclosure on religiousness in the United States. So anyway, it's kind of an interesting thing. So uh, at this point now, 94 – Bigelow starts hearing about skin or I, Bigelow doesn't start hearing about it. And we're going to get into this in the next episode some more when we get to the ranch, but skinwalker ranch becomes a publicly known item. It, yes. Yes. It becomes more. Yes. We don't know at, the, at this point. You just know more about the ranch. You don't know about who's funding it. What's what's going on with it. Stuff like that. Right. But stories about the ranch start popping up. So one of the first ones is in the Deseret News, which is a Salt Lake mm-hmm. City uh, newspaper. It, it Stories are written about it by, say, George Knapp, but we don't know how this happens, you know? And so at this point in time, Bigelow, uh, bought, you know, he eventually will buy the ranch, of course. Um, at the same time, he helps found the UFO Research Coalition, a short-lived UFO research group containing um, the members of MUFON, Q4s, and FOO4, which is the fund for UFO research, which still exists. Q4s kind of still exist. That was started by, um, it was started by, uh, oh my God, not John Keel, um, Hynek, J. Allen Hynek, and then MUFON, of course, which Schusler is involved in, Carpenter, everyone else. Um, but this is a group that's meant to kind of bring all the camps together. And like all good UFO uh, stories, the camps then immediately start infighting and it disintegrates. 
So of course. good times. Um, and then you finally get something that can bring everyone together. That's the first problem you're going to have. Yeah, it's a uh, it's good stuff. So at the same time, though, interestingly, it's universal. Like when, it, the, when the aliens do come down and land, that's the first thing that they can, you know, that we can we can draw them to that we've been able to agree on. Right. Look, none of us like anyone else. It's perfect. We can't be Nobody in groups likes of, anybody else's ideas. <laughs> we can't be in groups of more than ten or we start killing each other. Cool. Welcome well, to we, Earth. I would even say seven. Maybe. Yeah, ten's, ten's yeah. high. Um, yeah. So this – at this point then, 94, Bigelow has also started putting out ads in scientific journals looking for scientists who are interested in studying anomalous phenomena. Um, in particular, he places one in the magazine Science, which is a, not really a magazine, it's a journal, a, a scientific journal. And that is where one Colm Kelleher will say that he first becomes introduced to Bigelow. He sees this ad, he mm. becomes intrigued, and he contacts the team and uh, eventually will join NIDS. And so that gets us to 95, where NIDS starts. Now, we've already shown, and we, we've discussed here, that it's very likely that he was already working with some of these people, and some of them he certainly was already working with. But we're going to go through um, some of these names here. So this is the full list of members of NIDS based on their website on the Wayback Machine. We're going to go through all the members now, and then we're going to go through two people in particular. So, of course, you have uh, Warren Bergren, who is an, am- uh, an animal physiologist by training. So he is that previous dean of the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Um, he's the dean of the Department of Science, like an interim dean. And he's the one that's there when that chair of consciousness studies is formed. So that's how he kind of knows Bigelow. You also have Douglas P. Ferraro, another PhD, who was the provost of the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and a psychologist. So again, obviously, you know, part of Bigelow's circle here, he's giving away philanthropy monies to the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. That's how they know him. Um, we then have Albert A. Harrison, who is a psychologist who's known specifically for his work in how humans interact in social sp- systems, but in particular, how those social systems will translate to space colon- uh, colonization. Hmm. It's likely that Harrison is someone that Bigelow would have met at like the Mars Society or even the Center for like Space Tourism. Um, however, he, he meets him somehow, obviously. I um, love that. There's also Edgar Mitchell. Mm-hmm. Edgar Mitchell, <laughs> easily, easily the biggest, uh, the biggest deal on the team, right? Um, a actual astronaut, um, big deal, right? Big big deal. A real astronaut. <laughs> yeah. So he is part of NASA's fifth astronaut group. Um, he's in a support crew, and then um, yeah, it's just awesome. Right. It's a great guy. Super cool into this stuff. We've know we know he's been into this stuff for a while or we knew that he was into, into this stuff for some time. Um, so Edgar Mitchell, big get for NIDS. The next one is Melvin Morse, MD, who is a near death experiencer or a near death experience researcher in particular, a pediatrician. He actually wrote some weird books about like near death experiences and meeting God and stuff like that. So he's definitely, um, part of this kind of milieu of near-death experience and consciousness studies that Bigelow's doing. Then you have um, uh, Martin Pilch, PhD, who is a laser scientist from Los Alamos. 
Um, he's, it's, it's quite sensible to think that he knows this team from either Pudoff or John Alexander, who will go on to work at Los Alamos. Mm-hmm. Um, Ted Rockwell, um, a doctor of science. Again, he is associated with Princeton University in Pear. That's likely how he knows Pudoff and Bigelow is through that kind of you know Princeton University group that's doing this kind of stuff. He's also a former Navy man, um, similar to Pudoff. John Schusler, a master of science, big part of MUFON, right? Also another important part of real space history here. Um, but, you know, that's how, kind of how he gets uh, involved is through his time in MUFON. Um, it would probably be a good time, or, or what's the word? He would be good to have mm-hmm. kind of his own, um, I don't know, his own study on or his own story on. He's a very interesting person. He was an aerospace engineer um, before joining up with MUFON. Um, Jessica Utz, PhD, their mathematician. Um, she yeah. is in, involved because of her involvement, likely, in the Society for Psychical Research. She also is one of the few statisticians who is who views Harold Hal Pudoff's work positively um, when the CIA does a study to decide if they're going to continue his funding or not in the 80s. So that's probably how they became friendly um, and how they met. Hmm. Jacques Vallée, PhD, you know, super UFO stud, super obvious how he got involved here. I I think it's worthy of note, though, just saying like that, again, like he brought all these people together. They're all working with, hypothetically, they're all working with one another. Under no kind of, under no guise or no, um, no corporation there's probably not a real mission statement. There's no academia, you know, academics no. behind it. No, no, no. We're, right? yeah. It's like they're all in a van. They're all in some Scooby van heading out. Like, I don't, that's what I think I keep, I keep coming back to is this like, how would you even harness these people to do anything? You well, so many of these, of these, you know, different, some scientists, maybe, you know, again, air quoting some of it, but like you have all of this, all of these people how do you how do you organize them to do anything? Well, yeah, just maybe the type A in me getting across, but it's like that would drive me crazy. When I mean, when you, you'd be like, "Where's you know, where's what's?" Oh, he went to get coffee or something. You're like, "But we gotta go." Well, we you know, there's we actually, an anomaly and da da da. We actually end up getting um, anonymous reports from the ranch that essentially say that exact thing, right? That oh, okay. this is a complete waste of time. We don't do anything. We just sit on our butts. There's no. Uh, there's no direction. We're not testing anything. We're not doing anything. We're going to get into yeah, all that, I, Marie. Um, true. But I mean, I, I think it's interesting to think that you could do that. Like you just would have- from the, yeah, just from the beginning, this is not a very focused team. You know, it's not like they have one psychologist. They have like five psychologists. Like why? You know, why do you need five psychologists yeah. to do these scientific studies um, on, you know, if you, they, they have no, they don't have a single kind of like technician, like a person who is good at measuring uh, audio and video, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. They don't have a single audio and video person on the team. They don't have uh, they have a couple of laser physicists, kind of sort of still laser physicists, although Pudoff won't do laser physics at this point for like 30 years. Um you know, they have they have technical people, but, you know, if you put, like, the top minds in chemistry in a room today and told them to put together an Ikea table, 
I, you know, I don't know if they could do that better than a couple of carpenters. You know, like it, no. you need uh, yeah. you need specialization. You need to be able to. You need to have a team that's directly good at the stuff you're looking to do. Otherwise, like you said, it's just kind of a milieu of random people. You well, know, and you have to like disclose what you're doing. That's yeah, the if, other thing. If right? the Justice like, League, if the Justice League is going to fight Manta Ray in the bottom of the ocean, they don't send Batman in the Flash. Right, you send Aquaman because he's good at that. Because yes. he's got the specialization. That's why the Justice the team works. And they have the organization, right? They have the back end, like they have the management yeah. to kind of get these people in place and figure this stuff out. And I feel, but I feel like that's the other thing is, it's like Bigelow never really disclosed anything that I've read with Nids. Like, here's what I want from you. I mean, I think he put out sort of a rough, a rough sketch of it but it's it's like that's even worse right because it's, it's like not, there's yeah. no way you get this you get all these almost engineer type minds in a room and have them agree on like okay this is what we should do well it's also kind but of like money throw at it man that's it's cool also kind it. of i think it's also kind of funny and hopeful to have a statistician on board when you don't run a single experiment i love that like why have a statistician <laughs> why have a statistician if there is no besides okay we don't know for sure that they didn't run experiments they they ran some of course but we are making all sorts of assumptions. It could have been a real finely tuned right. machine. Bigelow so might have an know. alien in his garage right now. We don't know. But in his multi-car garage in many different locations. But the challenge is some in space. Even if you think that this stuff is real, why like the statistician might be useful at some level, mm-hmm. but it seems like kind of a big leap to think that part of what she will be doing is actual statistics on a, on evidence when you know that the chances of an event occurring are super small, even on this ranch that supposedly is super haunted. You know, we're going to get into it on the next episode here, how this doesn't really work. But anyways, um, there are, there are, there are some other members here. So Jim Winery, MD, PhD, he's a chemist and uh, he's a very kind of a famous flight surgeon at this point in time. Mm -hmm. His particular work is how the brain responds to getting shut off by G forces, like in a, in a, in a cockpit of like a space shuttle. So why would you have him? I don't know. He riddle me this. He kind of came for the free bagels. I don't know. It's not clear. (sighs) Then of course, Colm Kelleher PhD. He is the administrator quote unquote. Although again, uh, those are big air quotes there. He says that he uh, he basically gets his start doing immunological research. He works for the Jewish Center for Immunology in Denver, Colorado, sees this job offering in Science Magazine, decides to join. The, the, the thing says, quote, um, an organization was looking for science managers who were interested in exploring the origin and evolution of consciousness in the universe. Um, so he joins up. Anyways, um, and who, like, again, like, you are, if you are one of these scientists, you are taking, like, a, granted, it's a, it's a good deal of money, but, like, what's the hook? Like, you could make a good deal of money or at well, least so enough money I don't know. doing whatever. Like, I don't what even you, know. You're like, I don't even know how much they were. That? I don't even know how much they were really paid, to be honest. <laughs> like, Did they that, get benefits? Well, that, yeah. Did they that's, have unionized? Based on, based on the Bigelow Glassdoor reviews, their benefits aren't great. It's not great. So not it's, great. Not, there's, there's, it's not clear. He yells a lot. He yeah, seems it's not, like he's volatile. Yeah, it's... Or at least he has high expectations. As he well. does. 
The other person that's involved in all this is Mary Allman, who is just listed as a staffer on the NIDS website. Who the hell knows what that means? Well, they've got to do something. Like, again, like, somebody's got to, like, again, office supplies, figure out where the conference rooms are, you know, yeah. <laughs> fix computers. Sorry. So, so this is a team of, you know, a lot of, of mostly guys. Yeah. Right? Like, how many total? So, Estimated like at its heyday, how many? How many total? So uh, fourteen, fifteen if you include Bigelow people. Uh, one mm-hmm. woman, Jessica Hudson, mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. a combined age at this point in the story of about a thousand. Uh, <laughs> a almost lot. all PhDs. They're all PhDs. Almost all PhDs. They're they're yeah. at least all masters in some fields. Yes. Um, and some so, of them are legit versus not like you've got a yes. real astronaut. And so, yeah. And so two of the people that we haven't mentioned are mm-hmm. John Alexander, Ph.D. and Hal Pudoff, Ph.D., who Hal Pudoff is listed as chairman of the board, a title he will take on again later on for To The Stars Academy um, when he is, you know, later, later on in part of the story. Spoiler alert, listeners. So. Let's uh let's get into let's get into the, these people two. here a little bit. Now here's the thing, right? Like we've said, this is a group of people who are it's 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 completely not random how these people were brought in. But so we have we kind of have the people who are involved in parapsychology, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. We have the people who Bigelow knows from legitimate connections, like the University of Nevada. And, uh, you know, uh, I mean, at this point, essentially, the University of Nevada and then Colm Kelleher, right? And then we have the people who are kind of, who know him from space tourism, right? <laughs> Likely that's going to be, you know, uh, Albert Sorry. Harrison, um, Jim Winery, you know, those kinds of people there. I guess. So. Like, when I look at this list of names, I can't help but wonder, like, is there some other common denominator that we just are not seeing? In, they might, they it? might all, they might all know. legitimately believe in this stuff. I don't know, but it's sort of like, again, to have all of these people who some of them maybe make more sense to be there versus not, but the, just this huge range. Cause again, it's like, if, if I'm Bigelow, I've got enough money to, to be relatively selective of the people that I'm bringing into this and, 14 in this field is not, it's not a huge number. I mean, well, I mean, I don't so want to call them kooks, right? I know. I don't want to, I don't want to say like, but like, let's just, just pretend just for the sake of argument that they're scientists in the biology, you know, whatever, whatever the, the natural science or their chemists or their, their engineers or their, their, their astronauts. So they have, you, you have a kind of a wealth of, of people that you could draw from but these are the ones that you these are the these are the 14 that you kind of bring together to do this well it seems and that's why i think it's interesting too it's like i don't know if we're missing something it i don't seems, think we are it, but it seems very much so that i mean first off the a lot of those people are going to become extraneous characters and that sounds crazy to say about like say edgar mitchell you know mm-hmm. that he's the he's the person that gets kind of left out of the cool group but really the core of nids becomes john alexander Hal Pudoff, uh, Schusler, and Colm Kelleher. 
Those yes. re- those really become because the other these people no are, statisticians. These other these other people are listed as part of the science advisory board. So part of what they're supposed to do, or part of what their mission is supposed to end up being, is yeah, you'll do some investigations maybe, but a, a part of their stated goal appears to have been to actually analyze scientific data as it comes in to act as a peer review board almost. Since that data never comes to fruition, it's hard to know that we know of allegedly, right? It's hard. It's hard to know how much of it ends up actually, how much do they really become used in all of this? You know, based on all of the stories that we have heard, and we're again, going to get deep Mm -hmm. into this with the Skinwalker Ranch series next. um, Based on everything we've heard about this, those other people don't really, they're not really involved. In the same way, you know, it's likely they 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 will eventually bring on. Like, they just got uh, the business cards. Is that what you're saying? Maybe. I mean, it's hard and to maybe know. Maybe the but t-shirt, the nids, the nids t-shirt. They will eventually bring on another veterinarian who, um, because of their interest in like cattle mutilations, and she becomes part of uh, like To the Stars Academy too at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. But but really, this initial team of kind of like really uh, big names and stuff, it's really hard to know how much of them, how much do they really contribute to this overall effort. But by the end, I think it's safe to say that they are not really involved anymore. Um, and you get that from like Hunt for the Skinwalker, that, you know, the core team is this and, and the later team is this, that kind of stuff. But Yeah, but the, uh, the, the problem I have with Hunt for the Skinwalker is that's one person's account in a lot of ways that has influenced other accounts. You know, you don't hear from, you don't hear from Jessica Oates, the, uh, no, the you statistician, hear, you hear right? from, you hear it from anonymous, you hear from anonymous, you hear anonymous stories right. of people writing letters to UFO groups saying we didn't do anything, but that's not the same. You know, that whistleblower has secondhand knowledge. Yes. <laughs> yes. So it's not good. For <laughs> so, what a- I'm just sort of curious because, again, like it, it's it's I forgot. And excuse me, as I you know, as I kind of go down a s- small rabbit hole, I forgot like how many of them there were at NITS. I was thinking like when we were talking about no, it, I that's was going and back that's the thing. The core, I was thinking maybe six, right? The core six, team, five, no, the core four? the core team becomes no. those ones that we said. Well, the core team that we know of, because here's the other thing: it's like what if. What if these people were involved and we just we don't have their account because of whatever was whatever they found or whatever's mm-hmm. been disclosed and publicized? Right. I mean, you're saying that like uh, Kelleher is he he's the one who wrote Hunt for Skinwalker. Right. So, I mean, it's like there's a financial incentive to come out with some of this stuff in some ways as well. I'm just saying that there's you got a lot of people here that you haven't heard from about what their experience was. Absolutely, which would no. be fascinating. I agree with you. I agree with you for sure. There, it's that's true. I'm getting, I'm getting the, uh, I'm getting the SUV. I'm getting gas in it. I should be in Minnesota by, and then we can be like in, uh, we can be in New Mexico probably the next day. Oh. Yeah, that's not like a 20 hour drive. Anyways, so <sighs> part of this, and and actually the question of how these people all got together is part of a larger conspiracy kind of idea or a mythology, I guess I should say, because it's hard again to tell how much of it is conspiracy versus not. It's part of this idea of Richard Doty again, of a group known as the aviary, which is supposedly that group of disinfo agents 
who these are UFO researchers, parapsychologists, whatever, um, essentially like half the NIDS board, who are being given real information about UFO involvement by the U.S. government in exchange for helping to cover up cases and give information to the government about UFO sightings. In the hope, again, of, of hiding, say, our drone program that was going on in the 80s and 90s. So it's hard to – part of that mythology is that all of these people are from – all of these people have affiliations with or have worked around um, military bases in California and Nevada. Mm-hmm. And so that's how they're connected. They're all part of this uh, kind of circle of people interested in this, what's known initially as the UFO working group. That's going to be part of our Patreon episode and our bonus episode that will come out. But, okay. Let's get into this. Um, the... Bum, bum, bum. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it needed a sound effect, yeah. All right. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. Um, so, the story here of Harold, Hal Pudoff. Let's start with Hal Pudoff. Okay. So Harold Pudoff, Hal Pudoff, begins his career as a promising electrical, electrical engineer. So he graduates from the University of Florida uh, with an MS in electrical engineering, then will serve in the Navy. So he works with the NSA, actually, in the early 60s at Fort Meade. Um, his work at, for the NSA was on the study of fiber optics and lasers. And actually, this goes into that larger conspiracy theory of while at Fort Meade, he is hired to become part of the aviary in the UFO working group. Anyways, he goes to Stanford eventually to obtain his PhD in 1967. And at Stanford, his research will focus on the use of what's known as a tunable laser and an electron and electron beam devices. So uh, in the modern day, if you've taken a chemistry course or if you have a kid who's in high school chemistry right now, Hal Pudoff worked on the technology that would eventually become part of things like, say, uh, Raman spectroscopy. The idea here is that if you can tune the the frequency or the energy gap, the band gap between um, an electron's initial state and its final state as it gets excited in a material, then you can tune the kind of electro, electromagnetic you know, light the the light wave essentially the photon that is released when that material is excited then de excited. And if you can do that, if you can create a material that has the property where you can change that response, the output, by how much energy you put in or what kind of energy, then you can create a laser beam that you can control much more than lasers up to that point were able to be controlled. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Does that kind of make sense, Marie, that explanation? Yeah. You know, I, I have to admit, I, I did not get that far in, in, uh, in, in my natural science <laughs> So So imagine, I guess a good way of explaining this is imagine um, like quantum mechanics works like a step for energy, right? Uh-huh. So like uh-huh. 
it's kind of similar to if you go to a store where they don't give out change. So you give a dollar and, you know, if it's 50 cents, it's a dollar. If it's 55 cents, it's a dollar. If it's a dollar, it's a dollar. You know what I'm saying? Like things mm-hmm. go by steps. There is no kind of middle ground there. So you either have enough energy or you don't. And so with a laser, um, the amount of energy that you put into a system like a material lattice will determine, and a lattice is just like a, a structure, like a crystal or something. Right, 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 um, right. Okay. The amount of energy that you put into the material will determine how much the electrons in that material can get excited, which means that they will take in that energy, right? So they'll go up in mm-hmm. energy like they'll take in a dollar. But eventually, the electrons will relax just naturally. And when they relax, they release that dollar again. And so the amount of energy that it releases, though, is determined by essentially like the chemical structure of the material. Hmm. In a tunable laser, there are multiple frequencies that you can hit to get different colors, for lack of a better word, of light to release from the laser beam. Okay, I'm with you. So imagine like instead of plucking like a single guitar string or rather, Mm -hmm. let's say this, let's say this way, instead of just having like a flute that can only play one note, you have Mm -hmm. a guitar string where depending on where you place your finger, you can change the output of the sound wave. Okay. It's the same kind of way. I'm with you. You're inputting. It's almost like a ceremony. You're inputting the same amount of energy, but you're getting a different note out. So Hal was working on work where you could create tunable lasers. And the reason that this is important is that different amounts of radiation give different chemical bonds are like guitar strings. So if you can change the amount of energy that you pluck that guitar string with, you can get different information about the chemicals that are in a structure. Okay. That's basically how Raman spec works. So, like, every chemical Mm -hmm. species has a specific, like, note that it makes when it's plucked with laser Mm -hmm. energy. Mm -hmm. But they'll only... He sounds legit. He was super... He was super legit legit at this point. He's so legit at this point. Sounds legit. What then happens is Hal goes through some personal traumas. So, at this point in time, he's a lecturer in the electrical engineering department Mm -hmm. at Stanford... He has some students that will graduate with their own PhDs in electrical engineering or applied physics. But like Hal's marriage falls apart and he's kind of finding himself bored with his life and things. And so he ends up joining the Church of Scientology. Yeah. And so um, he will then spend he'll then spend time as well. At the Assailant Institute, which is a a commune, echelon, echelon, whatever the heck it's called, right? A commune that's focused on the human potential movement. So, like, Mm -hmm. humans can become psychic if they meditate and study Mm -hmm. enough and whatever. So, really quick, a a quick pop culture note about this for anyone who's seen Mad Men. So, the end of Mad Men, and spoiler alert, I'm going to give away the uh, end of Mad Men, where he is when he's thinking about the Coca-Cola commercial that he ends up becoming famous for is supposed to be Esalon. Oh, interesting. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, so yep. at this point, it's a big hippie thing. 
Yeah. It is a huge hippie thing at this point. No, it absolutely is. It's it's a huge thing. And and frankly, it's a big part of L. Ron Hubbard's whole Scientology thing, right? It's how he's getting some people Mm -hmm. to join Scientology is saying, like, Mm -hmm. well, we have the answers to that stuff, right? So Mm -hmm. at this point in time, L. Ron Hubbard is is trying desperately to find any kind of scientific corroboration for the stuff in Dianetics. Um, And so – Specifically, luck, buddy. specifically the ability to turn normal people into psychics, to have the ability to do remote viewing, to have, uh, you know, telekinetic powers, to be able to communicate telepathically, all this kind of stuff. And Pudoff is at the wrong place at the wrong time. He is, you know, going through going through things that are hard to deal with generally. Mm-hmm. And then he has this, frankly, cult leader be like, come, come hang out with us. We got the answers, right? Yep. yep. And so 1970, um, he obtains a patent on his Raman laser. Um, he's 33 at this point in time in 1970. But at the same time, he writes a notarized letter describing how, how great the e-meter is. So the e-meter, for those that don't know, is a device used in Scientology to measure your, like, thetan levels, the the, the aliens um, eating yeah. your... What's a, you want to get into what a thetan level is? I don't think we should get into it too much. It's like psychic negative energy, but it's actually aliens on your mind or something. South Park did a surprisingly good rundown on all of it, to be honest. They did. Um, they and, uh, with that. Anyway, so the letter is notarized. It's written by Hal Pudov. So he says, quote, Although critics viewing the system, Scientology, from the outside may form the impression that Scientology is just another of many quasi-educational, quasi-religious schemes, it is in fact a highly sophistical and highly technological system, more characteristic of the best modern corporate planning and applied technology, end quote. Is it? Yeah, so he falls for Scientology super hard. And so by 1971, um... He reaches the stage of OT7 in Scientology, which is operating Thetan level 7, which was the highest level possible at that point. And at this point, he is now claiming that he himself is psychic. He can perform remote viewing feats. Um, There's one particular case where he says that he can read... uh, What was it? I think this was him, but there's a story of... um, standing outside a, a a building and reading the directory inside the building um, and then going in and finding that it's right. So he completely gives up essentially on physics convenient. and jumps to yeah, very convenient, right? Do they have donuts in there? <laughs> you know, is the, is the frosty is machine working dentist? in Wendy's? It is my dentist. <laughs> is it on the second floor? It's on the second floor. Right. Super useful. Um, so, uh, so he uh, he completely abandons his promising electrical engineering career and decides to focus on parapsychology, specifically remote viewing. So he joins what's known as the SRI or the Stanford Research Institute, um, which is, uh, you know, essentially his work is focusing on the biofield, um, which is the physical quasi science that's supposed to explain how the e-meter works. Like, the ability of the human mind to extend that biofield out to see things at a distance, to affect things at a distance, Uh, all that kind of crap. 
Uh-huh. So uh-huh. um his joining though with SRI coincides with it losing all of its affiliation with Stanford University as well as all of its funding. So which um, Yeah, which sucks which sucks for him joining up, but it's hilarious mm-hmm. that they still use the name Stanford. They completely split with Stanford because students find out that the programs at SRI are being funded by DARPA and the CIA. And so they don't want any part in like the military industrial complex's weird you know, attempts to create psychic uh, soldiers and crap. And that sounds like I'm right. being flippant. I'm not being flippant. We're going to get into that in a couple it's minutes. 70s. It's the 70s. They were doing that stuff. All kinds of crazy crap. Yeah. Oh. It was so, also disclosed in some of the, a lot of that was disclosed in the, uh, the, the church committee. Yes, well. absolutely. <clears throat> so 1972, he performs easily his most famous work with Russell Tarr. Mm-hmm on the investigation of psychic phenomena for the CIA. The experiment basically focuses on two different methods. Um, one is the collection of data from a remote, a, rem- a remote point, also known as remote viewing. And the other one mm-hmm. is the manipulation of the effects of a random system, which that's psychokinetics. So that's basically the same experiment that was done at pair, right? The Princeton anomalous, mm-hmm. whatever the heck it was. Um, he, at this point in time, he studies a lot of uh, celebrities. He's, he studies Yuri Geller, Ingo Swan, um, and just mm-hmm. like random people. But a lot of them are Scientologists because he thinks that they're really psychic. So he thinks they're good. They're good hits, right? Um, yeah. You're going to put this out there. You got to go big. You got to go with Geller. Yeah. The study right? actually ends up the being. standard. 70s. <laughs> the study so. actually ends up being published in the journal Nature, which is one of the most important scientific journals in the world. It is the most important, not one of it's. It's the most important, right? It's like nature, then mm-hmm. science, then you know others. But the thing that people don't talk about in how it was published in Nature was that it was published against a backdrop of just comically significant backlash, both from other researchers at SRI who said that the results were fraudulent, mm-hmm. and against other scientists who studied it saying that it's a terrible piece of scientific work. So it being well, that had to have an article in the same, in the same, uh, in the same edition. They did. <laughs> like, can, they you, did. Can, can you imagine that that's what you're like, you're all excited and it comes out and it's behind that. So when it was published, actually the editor of nature took an extraordinary step, which was publishing an editorial explaining why they decided to publish this work and giving context around some of the reviewer comments so that people would understand what this work actually meant. And so I'm going to read some of that right now. So the whole thing is pretty long, and we're going to publish the whole thing for you so you can read it without the paywall being there. Um, <clears throat> but here's how it starts. So, quote, We published this week a paper by Drs. R. Targ and H. Pudoff, page 602, which is bound to create something of a stir in the scientific community. The claim is made that information can be transferred by some channel whose characteristics appear to fall outside the range of known perceptual modalities. Or, more bluntly, some people can read thoughts or see things remotely. Such a claim is, of course, bound to be greeted with a preconditioned reaction among many scientists. To some, it simply confirms what they have always known or believed. To others, it is beyond the laws of science and therefore necessarily unacceptable. But to a few, though perhaps to more than is realized, the questions are still unanswered and any evidence of high quality is worth a critical examination. 
The issue then is whether the evidence is of sufficient quality to be taken seriously. In trying to answer this, we have been fortunate in having the help of three independent referees who have done their utmost to see the paper as a potentially important scientific communication and not as a challenge to or confirmation of prejudices. A general indication of the referee's comments may be helpful to readers in reaching their own assessment of the paper. Of the three, one believed we should not publish, one did not feel strongly either way, and the third was guarded in favor of publication. We first summarize the arguments against the paper. And so the arguments against the paper, essentially, the first one is that the paper, all referees believe that the paper was weak in design and presentation to the extent that details given as to the precise way in which the experiment was carried out were disconcertingly vague. The referees felt that the referees felt that insufficient account had been taken of the established methodology of experimental psychology and then in the form originally submitted, the paper would be unlikely to be accepted for publication in a psychological journal on these grounds alone. Um, and actually, that is right, borne so out by... so it shouldn't be thrown out right there. And that, I mean, well, well that, it, it was thrown out that, by many journals first. It, it was not accepted in any psychological journal. So, yeah, okay, so who, who did he know, who did, who did they know it, like, why do you think nature did this? Because to so your we're, point, we'll, it's, we'll, it's the biggest. We're going to get to that. Okay. We'll continue, right. yeah. So, so two, two. The three referees were particularly critical of the method of target selection used, pointing out that the choice of a target by opening a dictionary at random is a naive, vague, and unnecessarily controversial approach to randomization. Parapsychologists Ooh. have long rejected such methods of target selection. And, as one referee put it, weaknesses of this kind reveal a lack of skill in their experiments, which might have caused them to make some other mistake, which is less evident from their writing. So, that will go into, greatly, problem three. All the referees felt that the details given of various safeguards and precautions introduced against the possibility of conscious or unconscious fraud on the part of one or other of the subjects were uncomfortably vague. This in itself might be sufficient to raise doubt that the experiments have demonstrated the existence of a new channel of communication which does not involve the use of the senses. Really um, quickly, then, uh, uh, stickers for any of our listeners that can tweet out hashtag uncomfortably vague. something <laughs> that they had to do this week. <laughs> That's um, my favorite. That is my favorite. It's That's a pretty awesome. good one. And then, um, it was uncomfortably vague. And then, two of the referees felt that it was a pity that the paper, instead of concentrating in detail and with meticulous care on one particular approach to extrasensory phenomena, produced a mixture of different experiments using different uh. subjects in unconnected circumstances and with only a tenuous overall theme. Yep. Um, so then they say, on their own, these highly critical comments could be grounds for rejection of the paper, but it was felt that other points needed to be taken into account before a final decision could be made. First, the paper is presented as a scientific document by two qualified scientists. Um, two, the authors have clearly attempted to investigate under laboratory conditions, phenomena which, while highly implausible to many scientists, would nevertheless seem to be worthy of investigation, even if, in the final analysis, negative findings are revealed. Third, very considerable advanced publicity it is fair to say, not generated by the authors or their institute, has preceded the presentation of this report. As a result, uh, many scientists and very large numbers of non-scientists believe, as a result of anecdote and hearsay, 
that the Stanford Research Institute was engaged in a major research program into parapsychological matters and had even been the scene of a remarkable breakthrough in this field. The publication of this paper, with its muted claims, suggestions of a limited research program, and modest data is, we believe, likely to out the more the whole matter in a more reasonable perspective. <laughs> um, okay. And then um, two of the referees also felt that the paper should be uh, published because it would allow parapsychologists and other scientists interested in this field to gauge the quality of the Stanford research and assess how much it is contributing to parapsychology. And then Nature said that essentially they believe their their people would their readers expect them to produce occasional high risk papers. Um, Ooh, so this is them going out on the limb. Yeah. So essentially, uh, they also then say here, um, I think importantly here, mm-hmm. is that um, they say publishing in a scientific journal is not a process of receiving a seal of approval from the establishment. Rather, it is the serving of notice on the community that there is something worthy of their attention and scrutiny. Um, So they're essentially saying that this is worth looking at because first off to kind of quell some of the the claims about SRI, but also because this is a legitimate attempt. They they would say to show this. However, um, even with its publication, the paper is met with extreme ridicule. Um, Both Targ and Pudoff are completely convinced of the results but it becomes quickly apparent that there are various clues hidden in the test themselves, which artificially increase the chances of a hit. And this is actually proven out later. Other parapsychologists do studies. So David Marks and Richard Kamen both attempt to replicate the results, but aren't able to do so after they remove the cues from the testing protocols. Uh, so, um, yeah, it's a big deal, right? Um, yeah. And so, so they consciously or unconsciously rigged it. Yes. So they say here, quote, um, this is from Thomas uh, Gilovich, a psychologist at Cornell, quote, most of the material in the transcripts consists of the honest attempts by the by the participants to describe their impressions. However, the transcript also contained a considerable extraneous material that could aid a judge in matching them to the correct targets. So, for instance, um, the way that this test worked. And so this is actually from a a response from Pudoff and Targ. Right. Um, So, okay, here's how it works. This is a quote from their paper. Um, this is uh, from SRI, uh, published, submitted for publication in Nature, Information or Transmission in Remote Viewing Experiments to Reanalysis of SRI Remote Viewing Experiments by Charles Tart. Again, that same guy that worked with Bigelow. So, quote, mm-hmm. At the beginning of an experiment, one experimenter is closeted with a test with a subject to await an agreed-upon start time. A second experimenter is then sent by random number access to a previously prepared target pool to a target location in the San Francisco Bay Area, an area of approximately 250 square kilometers. During a predetermined 30-minute viewing period, the subject is asked to render drawings and describe into a tape recorder his impressions of the target site being visited by the outbound experimenter. The experimenter remaining with the subject is kept ignorant of both the particular target and the contents of the target pool and is therefore free to question the subject to clarify his descriptions without fear of cueing overt or subliminal. Following a series of such, such experiments over a several-day period, the data are given to independent judges for various forms of blind analysis, such as correlation of target-slash-transcript descriptors, blind matching, etc. 
In the blind matching procedure, which provides an overall estimate of target slash transcript correlations, a judge attempts to blind match transcripts to target sites. Now, what happens is that mm-hmm. some of the some of those judging protocols give evidence of what sites are being visited when. So because yeah. it's not a purely random process, mm-hmm. and in fact the judges know what the list of San sites Francisco. Yeah. Because the judges the judges are actually given a list of the possible sites at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Mm. Because of this, and because they like, almost comically send people to the sites in the order that they are on on that list of sites, people are able to figure out how to place the transcripts in proper sequence. And actually in nice. the in, in the in the stuff that the judges are given, there's references to like dates and times. And so it'll say like um after we visited site seven or something, right? So and it's not as like clear as that. It's not as obvious as that. However, it, the sequence with which they study these things is easy is is easily figured out from the list of places and then the the kind of cues hidden in the documents that weren't edited out correctly. Yeah, basically, it's rigged. Yes, essentially, you're rigging it. You're yeah. rigging it, whether you know it or not. So. 1974 now, um, he publishes, Pudoff publishes a success story in Celebrity Magazine, a Scientology Ah. publication. He says, quote, having totally completed Dianetic auditing, I must say I have an incredibly good feeling about creating life games, my my ability to play them hard and well, and a feeling of absolute fearlessness, Um, end quote. So, hey, good, man. Feeling good. That's great. Um, Good up on ya. Late 1970s, he continues his work with SRI under the new name of Project Stargate. This is founded in 1978 in Fort Meade, Maryland. And this is a joint venture between the Defense Intelligence Agency, or DIA, and the SRI International. Essentially, they are studying psychic phenomena for applications in Defense Department projects and needs. This is likely where he meets John Alexander and the cast of characters of the movie The Men Who Stare at Goats, which is actually loosely based on John Alexander. Um, one of the people yeah. that Bigelow hires is his scientist. So good stuff. Yeah. Um, Not so loosely. So it's completely it's based on completely, him. <laughs> completely 100% based on them. So <laughs> There's no loosely. Um, I think they even take the title from his work. Yeah. However, um, very quickly. You know what's funny? You know what's funny about that, actually? Huh. In John oh. Alexander's quotes about the men who steered goats, he's like, you know, that whole scene where they look at the goat to kill it, that's all just bullcrap. We actually use the, like, one-finger death punch technique. <laughs> it's like, oh, that makes more sense. That sounds more reasonable. Do you see how, do you see how you, you, you're not adding credibility when you say the words one-finger death punch? Yeah, that it's doesn't, not. You know, it's that not doesn't good. get you closer. That doesn't get so, you closer, man. Um... So Project Stargate's funding, though, dries up in the mid-1980s. And so, and, and somewhere in this time period, Pudoff quit Scientology. We don't know why. Um, maybe That's it's because story. of his... Maybe it's because of his connection with, like, the government suddenly that, you know... Because L. Ron Hubbard was really worried about... Um, taxes. He was, really, he was really worried about, like, well, yeah, taxes, but he was taxes, really concerned yeah, about... He was really concerned about uh, government agents f- infiltrating Scientology and taking it over or, you know, using it and investigating and whatever. So 
you can imagine Pudoff is like really high up. There aren't that many OT sevens uh, at the time. Like Pudoff is essentially like where Tom Cruise is now. He's super high up. Um, he's a scientist. He's a jewel in their cap, really. So it's not clear so if he they let him go. That's the other interesting thing is the more you know about Scientology is the more of it they they, you know, kind of make it very difficult for you to. Well, so leave that's in certain, that's the thing. I kind of wonder if they did let him go. I kind of wonder if, like, I don't know, he stops talking about it, and it appears he stopped being a Scientologist, but, like, his views on this stuff haven't really changed. You know what I mean? That's an interesting story. Yeah, it's a very interesting story, and it's one that I would love to get to the bottom of, but after this episode, I doubt very much how Pudoff's going to talk to us. Um, oh, yeah. Well, like, we had yeah. that shot before. So, anyways, so... um the program, essentially, like, its funding dries up in the 80s, and so uh, Pudoff leaves, but eventually it, it fully dries up in the 1990s, and that's because it is analyzed by, well, not because of this, but so in the 90s it transfers over from being a DIA project to being a CIA project, and then the CIA, uh, the guy who was funding this, John Alexander's kind of mentor, um, the major general who's working, uh, he's working under, is forced out of the army because of his belief in like psychics and stuff. And the guy that comes in next is much more grounded and is like, why are we, why is our goat budget so high? <laughs> why, why are we, who spent a million dollars on for a one finger punch? Right. Yeah. Who spent a million dollars on crystals? This doesn't make any goddamn sense. So yeah, they move to, um, they moved to more traditional, that's the way that it's listed on the website, more traditional security uh, analysis tools. And so he, they do part, like, they basically do, like, an audit of the psychic program. And so mm -hmm. um, part of that, though, is actually Jessica Utz um, and psychologist John Hyman for the CIA performing a review of the results of the Stargate uh, experiment. And so... Um, mm -hmm. She basically says she says that the the results of this are a compelling argument to continue the program within the intelligence community. Um, but John Hyman says it's complete crap. Um, so he huh. says he says, um, quote, the laboratory studies do not or this is actually from sorry. This is from uh, the executive summary called an evaluation of remote viewing research and applications from the American Institutes for Research published in 1999. Um, quote, the laboratory studies do not provide evidence they address an important – oh, sorry. The laboratory studies do not provide evidence um, regarding the origins or nature of the phenomena, assuming it exists, nor do they address an important methodological issue of interjudge reliability, that same issue of – that Putoff had before. Mm -hmm. Further, even if it could be demonstrated unequivocally that a paranormal phenomena occurs under the conditions present in the laboratory paradigm – these conditions have limited applicability and utility for intelligence-gathering operations. For example, the nature of the remote viewing targets are vastly dissimilar, as are the specific tasks required of the remote viewers. Most importantly, the information provided by remote viewing is vague and ambiguous, making it difficult, if not impossible, for the technique to yield information of sufficient quality and accuracy of information for actionable intelligence. Thus, we conclude that continued use of remote viewing and intelligence gathering operations is not warranted, end quote. So, interestingly here, his argument is a pragmatic one, you know? It's, 
Yeah. Like, imagine you're a remote viewer. They're like, where's Osama bin Laden? And you're like, he's in a cave. That doesn't, that doesn't help me. He's What's in San cave? Francisco. You know, Wait, no. Yeah. <laughs> well, exactly. Like, unless, unless it's like, he's, he's on the Eiffel tower. It's, you know, it's hard to, even in, in a house, like, how would you ever just think about that? Right. How would you right, ever well, pinpoint yeah. where someone is by remote viewing? And it's just not, it's just still too fringe, right? For the people that are going to be coming in that are going to, you know, like you said, if it's, if it's a different administration, if it's a different, if it's a different, um, yeah, it's like structure, it's, it's like, they're yeah, not going to be like, oh yeah, this sounds good. Let's keep giving money to this. Right. It's, it's, it's likely have a different agenda. It's likely that the guy—I mean, not likely—the guys that came in after kind of John Alexander and the other team, the men, started, yeah. the men who started goats guys, likely never dropped acid with L. Ron Hubbard. So it kind of makes sense, <laughs> you know, that it like kind never, of, right? It they're just kind never of happened. Like, they're, they're probably actually soldiers and officers trained in, you know, warfare and in the military, and they probably had. Some very valid ways of looking about how to gather intelligence versus a wonder fingered punch and goats. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like I can see that. I can. I, and not, I'm and listen, give that to them. Not to say I'm again. To again, we're being a little flippant. John Alexander's story is actually super badass, and so is the story of the people super around him. Badass. Like it's actually super yes. cool. So you know, it's funny that he did this kind of stuff, but like he actually did it. That's super cool. We almost had psychic armies. Now, okay. So close. let's close out Pudoff here. So 85, he founds Earth Tech International in Austin, Texas, um, as well as the Institute for Advanced Studies at Austin, which has absolutely no affiliation with the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton University. Um, it appears that he learned it, it appears like similar with SRI, uh, where they were no longer affiliated with the Stanford, but still kept the name Stanford on there. It appears oh, yeah. that he. Oh, yeah. It appears that the power of a famous name is really important. So why not use it? We don't have to be psychic to know that. Psychic to know that branding's going to work better. Yeah. Essentially, he he founded a company called like the Massachusetts Institute of Technocracy, and he called it MIT, and he put it that way on his resume and on his CV and everything else. So at this point, he starts to shift his focus over to zero point energy research. Um, although he's still super involved in psychic research, you know, that never really stops. Um, and even his study of zero point energy, it's, you know, it's still kind of psychic. Like it, his psychic stuff never ends. Um, it's likely that at this point in time, like we said, he was working on this project Stargate, which was part of John Alexander's purview um, and part of the purview of Alexander's uh, kind of, you know, uh, chain of command. So it's likely that that is where Alexander met Pudoff. Um, where he met Bigelow, it's a little bit harder to say. Although, again, Bigelow in the 80s was already doing this kind of funding. He was already looking for people. When he did that chair of consciousness studies, they did like a nationwide search for researchers. It would be oh, yeah. very surprising to me if Pudoff did not come up as an option in that search. Um, and honestly, oh, like one, one part of this story that I would actually love to know is – did Bigelow ever get involved in Scientology? Do you know what I mean? Um, uh, a waste of money. Absolutely not. You you think so? I don't know. I think it's so oh, fascinating. God, no. Nope. I, I wonder if he would have, 
I wonder though if he would have he would not have at least like my mom. It's funny. My mom, um, when I was a kid, you know, my mom has all these like books on weird stuff and whatever. And one of the books she has is Dianetics, and evidently she was like given it in on the street in New it. York City. Um, uh, and Dora's <laughs> like, "What is this?" Yeah, she was like, "What the hell is this crap?" But so she has the book, and she like it's so funny that. Um, you know, I was almost Ashton Kutcher, not Ashton Kutcher. Who's that guy from that '70s show that was a Scientologist or is a Scientologist? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know um, his name. Ugh. Anyways, yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, this is where though he would have he would have been introduced to those folks. So, and and essentially yeah. that's where it is now. He's still, um, you know, now he's part of NIDS, yeah. right? This is the point. See, I think, I think that Bigelow's way too practical. He's way too practical of a person to get think involved so? in Scientology. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, for some reason, I really, I don't know why I feel that way, but I'm, I'm relatively certain that it just, again, there's, there's too much, there's too much pseudo-faux kind of, I don't want to say, like, he, he's not a cult person. Like, he's not going to follow, right? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Buy I, into Scientology, you got to follow. And he's like, he's not a follower. He, no. He's not going to buy into any of the, sort of any of the uh, the mythos around it. And I think that that's the other thing, too, is with a lot of the things surrounding him, he's not, he doesn't, he's not interested in the mythos or the story so much around it. I mean, he has his own little, you know, the, the, the little origin stories, but that doesn't really seem what interests him. What, what, what's, what's interesting to him is the mechanics. Like, yes. How does it work? I don't care if the, you know, if they prayed to the sun and then the sun god brought them up to heaven. I'm not that none of that is interesting. You know, yeah. I have to follow the sun god if I want to do this. What what was the mechanism in which they transcended? So I don't think that he buys into any of that other stuff. I would agree with you. My two so, cents. No, I, I totally agree with you. So So Pudoth ends up really only publishing a, a very small amount of research after kind of finishing in, in electrical engineering, you know, he's publishing some stuff on, um, on what's the word he's publishing some stuff on, you know, uh, psychic things and, and, yep. and whatever. But essentially though, a lot of his work is, uh, a lot of his work is at this point in time, non, non peer reviewed, like non scientifically peer reviewed, right? He's publishing white papers and stuff from earth tech, um, mm-hmm. and the Institute for Advanced Studies. He's doing some zero-point energy work, but really, um, that's not even really being taken very seriously by the... Like, it's... Zero-point energy is an interesting field because it's it's close enough to... <clears throat> we we did an episode on zero-point energy already, but it it requires quantum mechanics to be fundamentally wrong. And so it's, a, it's an idea that has been... Um, and, and, and besides quantum mechanics having to be fundamentally wrong... Thermodynamics also has to be fundamentally wrong because you're pulling energy from a you're you're you are by definition breaking the second law of thermodynamics. You're pulling energy from a a fully uh, freely available not you know uh, energy source without any entropic source. Losses. Yeah, so it's it's essentially like a perpetual motion machine kind of kind of idea. So an energy energy dissipates by nature, right? It's that's what the second law of energy says. Energy will dissipate in transfer. Right. So, so how is what, how is what he's doing any different than like snake oil salesman? Honestly, with a lot of this stuff. 
So the thing is that it's similar to, like, say, the multiple worlds hypothesis, right? It's the, there. You can still do mathematics about zero point energy. You can still yeah. publish papers on it, but the sure. physical, but the physical reality of it, no one seriously, no one takes seriously, right? There are still, like, I mean, Marie, there are still people publishing papers about, um, about you know, flat Earth. Like, yeah, about not the flat Earth, but like, but like about. Um, I'm trying to think of like a good example, like climate change denial, right? There are people publishing papers on climate change denial still. Yes. Um, yes. They're, not, they're small yeah, I, fringe communities. I, I think, oh, I think my whole thing is it's, I don't, it, it, what's fascinating to me is you, you go from something that is again, sort of that he had a, he had a path or a future or something that was a bit more, I don't want to say traditional or known. And it's just, it's like Scientology and then zero point energy is sort of, again, just, I don't know. To me, it equates roughly into like, into snake oil salesman. Like you're, you're making something into something that's not, that is hypothetical and maybe someday could be proven, but not into any sort of, I don't know. Well, so like, like, so Ah, no, I'm with you. Like he was working on, he was working on a field of physics that Mm -hmm. would become like intensely important. Like he was, he literally, he legitimately was working on, he was working at the forefront of physics. And then he, I mean, there's an article, I can't remember the, where it's from. It's, it's linked in the notes here, but I think, I think there's an article that has the perfect name for it, right? How did Hal Pudoff let Scientology ruin a promising scientific career? Um, that's kind of, that's right? kind of true. So, I mean, even when you're going back and evaluating this stuff with Yuri Geller, how, why not do it scientifically correct? Why cut corners? He believed it so much. I think that it seems scientifically correct and it's unfortunate. Mm. And so the thing is that too, the zero point energy work is, uh, I, I think actually we'll get to this later on. Um, when we talk, when we talk about the transition to Sue the stars Academy for Pudoff, but What's actually really, really interesting is the field is so small. It's literally like mm-hmm. Pudoff, Eric Davis, one of his buddies, and like two other people doing research into zero point energy. And they're all, they all have similar kind of paths to Pudoff. So it's like the field of scholarship doing this kind of work is very uh-huh. tenuous to begin with. And so, and it, but it, but it follows mm-hmm. from a strong history. It's like, um, mm-hmm. It's a field that's falling out of favor, but like Einstein talked about like the voluminous ether, right? This idea of a, uh, or Einstein kind of broke that idea apart, but like pre-Einstein, right? There was this idea of the voluminous ether, which was this, um, like space time wasn't like a, wasn't like a fabric Linear, of reality, yeah. right? That, you know, gravity is space time bending in on a, on a heavy object. Or a massive, massive object that pushes it down, and so as you move, both time and space contract in in different ways. Before that, the voluminous ether was the explanation for like how gravity worked and, and everything else. There were mm-hmm. still papers about the voluminous ether going on after Einstein. Like Hal Pudoff is like a weird holdover kind of scientist working in a field that is not. It's, it's just not going to live past him. Hmm. As depressing as that sounds, mm. you know, but like that's, that's mm-hmm. the truth of it though. Mm-hmm. That's the way that some of these scientific, you know, it's like, it's like the people that were still publishing papers on Lamarckian genetics after the Soviet union fell, 
you know, like that. You lost me there on that one, but I can't it takes a long, it takes a long saying. time for paradigms to shift. Right. And his just yes. hasn't yet. In some ways, his paradigm has shifted so hard that he Scientologied himself into psychic powers. But in some other ways, his paradigm has not shifted at all from like pre, you know, I don't know, right. pre 60s physics. Anyways, um, so Colonel John Alexander, his mm-hmm. story is so honestly, I think he needs an episode all on his own. Um, but we're, so we're going to go with the, we're going to give the kind of the quick story here. He joins the army as a private in 56. He becomes selected for officer school as a sergeant. Um, and so eventually will reach the rank of colonel. Evidently, if you get chosen for the army, uh, like mm-hmm. officer school as an enlisted man, you're called a Mustang, I guess. Um, so like all of his biographies start with My like, show. John, John Alexander is a Mustang. <laughs> it's like, okay, that's cool, I guess. So, um, he he has degrees yeah. in sociology from the University of Nebraska and a master's degree and a PhD in education. Um, the master's mm-hmm. from Pepperdine and the edu- the PhD from Walden University. Um, and his PhD will he'll be he'll gain it in 1980. Now his army assignments are there's a bunch of them and honestly, um, Wikipedia does a great job here. So we're just gonna read from Wikipedia. So. He's a commander in the Army Special Forces team um, in Vietnam and Thailand from 66 to 69. He then becomes the Chief of Human Resources Division for the Army at Fort McPherson in Georgia from 77 hmm. to 79. He's the Inspector General for the Department of the Army, Washington from 80 to 82. Chief of Human That's Technology. Crazy. It's absolutely crazy. He like, becomes Inspector General is a legit real job. Yeah. He becomes the Chief of Human Technology um, in the Army Intelligence Command at Arlington, Virginia, from 82 to 83. Then a manager of technology integration for the Army Materiel Command um, from 83 to 85. Then the director for the Advanced Concepts U.S. Army Lab um, at uh, Command at Adelphi, Maryland, from 85 to 88. So he retires from the Army in, um, like, the 80s, like, mid-80s, late-80s, and will go on to become the uh, manager for non-lethal defense uh, programs at Los Alamos National Lab. Um, and so his work there is on non-lethal warfare, um, mm-hmm. which is super interesting. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of his main thing yeah. there. Um, right. So that's the uh, the sonic weapon. Exactly. Right? Yep. He helps to it's work on the sonic weapons. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So um, he claims that he was always interested in esoteric concepts and ideas and stuff. But really, his use of those in the army is brought on by connections to two men. Jim Channon and Albert Stubblebean, which Stubblebean is the cutest name for a tiny bear. It is. Hello, Mr. Stubblebean. So Channon is Channon famously is the main mm-hmm. character basis for the men who stare at goats. He creates what's known as the First Earth Battalion uh, memorandum or, or kind of note, right. you know, note or whatever memo, which is a, a, a description of a theoretical or maybe not so theoretical since they end up trying some of this crazy stuff, um, like a group of warrior monks for the U S army. So he like his whole idea is we can develop human potential to the point that our soldiers can, you know, like talk telepathically and get remote viewing information from afar. And, you know, like, like a, you know, crazy kind of thing. Right. Um, he also, so he interestingly will eventually become the world's first corporate shaman, is uh, what he is called basically. Which I wouldn't For be what very corporation. I wonder. 
Like he went to all kinds of ones, like four. Like he went to a bunch of like legit corporations, like AT and T, um, like Ford, like God. a whole bunch of places. Right? I would actually, I would actually be very surprised if he didn't go to Bigelow Aerospace. I would be very surprised. So, anyways, you think? Um, absolutely, I, I would Again, guarantee that he went to Bigelow. So, did you ever watch? Do you ever watch? Um, sorry, not pop pop culture reference number two, uh, Silicon Valley. Yes, he's that guy. He's the guy. That's right. He's the uh, the the spiritual, the semi spiritual shaman advisor to uh, to the uh, the main villainous, the anti, the and the villain character. I can't remember the guy's name. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I know who mm-hmm. you mean the guy that's mm-hmm. like the Facebook mm-hmm. guy or Moogly or whatever it's called, mm-hmm. Moogly. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, Hooli, Hooli. Yeah. There we go. So, Shannon uh, is an interesting <laughs> guy. Him. We should we should have an, our own episode on on him and this next guy too. So the other guy is Stubblebean. So he's a he becomes an army major general, and he was really the one who was pushing these ideas of psychic warfare, um, and like remote viewing and you know all this kinds of stuff. So he was the one who really pushed the ideas of Channon and and Alexander. Mm-hmm. He becomes one of the key sponsors of the Stargate project that Pudoff was working on. Uh, famously. He attempted in the 80s to create a group of super uh, powerful psychic soldiers um, who could walk through walls was like one of their main claims. And actually, Stubblebean evidently did, in fact, try to walk through a wall once and could not do it. Um, that's part of like the men do who served goats. Know, evidently, that's a real you thing. Why? He actually tried to do that. You know why? It's why? a wall. It's a wall. Has <laughs> Is that why, Marie? It's a wall? Like... So, uh, I don't know. I feel like okay, you know. I don't. Uh, so this is not political when I say this, but you know, you have people, you have men and women that serve our country that come back, that have to wait, you know, to get into the VA for for you know, and have their files lost in the VA and have like you know antiquated systems to to keep to keep people who serve our country healthy. And then you have jokers like this that are wanting to walk through a wall. Like, again, oh. like, I, there's got to be some sort of middle ground. No, right? this, I mean, this, like, yeah, this is a hundred percent for me a story of government corruption. Like, again, we've said this with TTSA too, right? The yeah, fact that yeah. Harry Reid could buy his friend a government research program into UFOs is a tremendous scandal. That should yeah. never happen in a free country. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and the like, money should yeah. be put... To, yeah, yeah. yeah. Our two cents. No, yeah, absolutely. So anyways, so uh, all of the work, Walking or a lot of the work that's double being... God. A lot of the work that's double being worked on was through the U.S. Army mm-hmm. Intelligence and Security Command, or INSCOM. Um, and again, he's eventually forced out of the Army in 84. He's he's forced into retirement, essentially, because of all of his psychic ideas and stuff, and they're just not part of mm-hmm. the time period anymore trying to walk into one too many walls <laughs> maybe i don't know well actually there's a there's a funny anecdote that supposedly he really offended a another like a politician or something or another person in the army mm-hmm. because that person was very religious like christian and he thought that Stubblebean was a like a demon worshiper he thought that he was involved in witchcraft um and that's like uh. one of many anecdotes about how this guy like was just a complete badass like Stubblebean is the man but anyways, uh, and, and so essentially at this point now, so, uh, you know, Stubblebean is retired. Um, John Alexander leaves the army. He's actually, he gets a lot of accolades for his work and stuff. I mean, he did, he did do the stuff he was told to do. You know what I mean? He was a good soldier. Mm-hmm. 
seems to have been a, a, a just overall a cool guy. Like all in interviews with him, he seems super fascinating. Like I would love to talk to him. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, so he goes on to study non-lethal weapons, like we talked about. He he starts calling himself a thanatologist, like a, a scientist of death. Again, completely badass. Um, and <laughs> to me, he's he is a little bit more. He's a good storyteller. Like uh, when we did when we did Skinwalker, I watched some of his retelling of cer- certain stories. I'm like, yeah, he's pretty good. He's he's he tells a good story. Absolutely, he's absolutely. He's so charismatic he, in that way. He uh, he ends up so his wife ends up working for Bigelow in the Bigelow Foundation, and Alexander also helps to uh, helps to. It's not super clear, but it seems to have helped to have started that MIT research conference. And he's certainly involved with Bigelow at, again, that Alexander study of kind of religious uh, response to UFOs and stuff. So, and that's how he meets Bigelow. And so, really, these two guys, Putoff and Alexander, become a really important part of overall UFO mythology in the modern day. Like, Putoff is is a part of To The Stars Academy. He is pointed out as a beacon of unbiased uh, quiet, careful scientific analysis. And I think his history speaks for itself. Um, you know, to be I would tend to frank. agree with you. Yeah. It's yeah. a little, it's a little hard to make that claim that, you know, this is someone we should be listening to. And on top of that too, um, you know, it's, it's interesting that, that this would be the team again, that would kind of crystallize around Bigelow because, this is a guy again who has so much money and he has a lot of real influence and he chooses. I don't know. So these are the people that are very evident that he has put forward in this. Like, again, like I I think there may be something to that. Like we only know that they have this association because they have made it public that they had this association. Mm Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways, right? And it's like they've made public what they have done, in, you know, or they have disclosed more about what they have done to help their own sort of mythos and story. But again, like they, what if, what if, what if they're not really the story? What if they're just again the subterfuge? Absolutely, no, you're you're completely correct, right? Part of this story, or Could part be. of all of this, mm-hmm. that we have to keep in mind is we know the parts of this that. It, some of the stuff in this, we it took a lot of digging to get to, you can imagine. But some of it is very out on the surface. And that's the part that they probably want you to see. And so that is why I think it's really important to keep in mind this possibility that a lot of this might actually be non-conspiracy misinformation. Yes, or a one side of the story, for sure. And so, basically... That is the founding of NIDS, the National Institute for Discovery Science. And so the scientists are all hired by 1996, and then they mm-hmm. will begin their study of a yep. facility that will go on to legend to be known as the Skinwalker Ranch. So they're packing up their bags, right? They're getting all their gear together to go to Utah. And that, dear listeners, is where we will pick up next episode. <sighs> that is if we make it. We gonna die, Marie. <laughs> no. No, we'll be fine. All right. All right. Good night, listeners. Good night. 
Thank you again, dear listeners, for listening to the Mad Scientist Podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell, joined by my co-host, Marie Mayhew. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at MadScientistPod or at Team Giant Squid for Marie. And of course, you can see us on Facebook, on Instagram, and all over the internet as the Mad Scientist Podcast. And again, our logo is the one with the pumpkin head, so it's easy to see. Mm-hmm. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, please consider supporting us on Patreon, where the money that you give to us will help us to promote this show further, to make it better, and just to spend more time making it. Yes, we love doing that. We do love doing that. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen. Our web design is done by Desdemona Howard. Woo-hoo. And our sound design is done by Jake Cardinal. Thanks again for listening. <laughs> Thank you. This has been a damn it chippy production. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes. And luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Califato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts. And I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style. And together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling and all in approximately seven minutes.